You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. of the world's population is under one form or another of comprehensive privacy laws, and that number was only 20% of the world in 2020. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben looks at proposed legislation coming out of Massachusetts that could ban cell site location data. I've got the story of comedian and author Sarah Silverman suing OpenAI over copyright infringement. And later in the show, Ben's conversation with Dan Freckling, CEO of Boltive, a company that provides publishers and ad exchanges tools to monitor and audit their programmatic ads. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, uh, lots going on this week. Why don't you kick things off for us? What do you got? So this is a big story uh, I first saw in the Wall Street Journal from Byron Tao, who writes a lot on these surveillance issues. Uh, And it's about a proposed law in the state of Massachusetts that would institute a widespread ban on companies buying and selling uh, cell phone location data. Hmm. Uh, And this would be a first-of-its-kind law across the country. Several states have enacted versions of data privacy laws that put limits on uh, the sale of cell site location information and other personal data. Uh, The Supreme Court weighed in in the Carpenter case and said that the government needs a warrant in most circumstances uh, to obtain historical cell site location information. This is the first time we've seen a state consider a law that's this potentially broad. Hmm. So what would uh, this law do? It's called the Location Shield Act. It would sharply curtail the practice of collecting and selling location data drawn from mobile phones in Massachusetts. So for the government, there would be a warrant requirement for law enforcement access to this data that would kind of conform the state law uh, to the the Carpenter case. And I think more importantly and more significantly, it would ban data brokers um, from buying and selling location data about state residents without court authorization. Hmm. There are a limited number of exceptions that I think are designed to benefit consumers. So 
Um, they can, uh, these companies can retain your location data for things like weather applications, uh, Amazon deliveries, that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, but it's a pretty broad, or at least the proposal is a pretty broad ban on these data brokers who buy and sell location information uh, against the professed wishes of the users, the people who have these devices. Uh, so there are a lot of progressive organizations in the state of Massachusetts who are fighting for this law, including the Massachusetts chapter of the ACLU. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the sponsor of this bill is a, a uh, Democrat representing the Boston suburbs. She's the majority leader in the state Senate. So uh, somebody with a little bit of influence and power. And she believes that this piece of legislation uh, has a very good chance of being enacted uh, before the end of this year. Hmm. Uh, there is opposition, of course, because uh, <laughs> there's a lot of money involved in this. Right. Uh, there's pretty well-organized opposition. And I don't want to paint this opposition in a corner that this is all about the money. I think there are legitimate reasons why this law could potentially be too broad and limit too much activity that ends up hurting instead of helping the consumer. Hmm. Uh, so there's uh, this group called the State Privacy and Security Coalition. They testified before a joint committee of the Massachusetts legislature in opposition uh, to this bill. Their representative, Andrew Kingman, said that uh, while they support heightened protections for particular types of personal information, including location data, uh, they think that there should be a better alternative to a wholesale ban on this data. Yeah. That the definition is very broad, uh, and it doesn't give the users uh, any type of choice. There's no opt-out provision. It's simply prohibited. Right. So if a user benefits from companies having their location data, and we've talked about many of the ways that users benefit from that feature— then they're out of luck uh, because it just simply would be outlawed in the state of Massachusetts. I also think that uh, the industry is going to have a problem here complying with this Massachusetts law, given that the 49 other states wouldn't have such bans in place. Mm -hmm. So they'd have to alter their practices, their collection practices, their EULAs, et cetera, to account for this new Massachusetts law. That happens sometimes. We've seen it in other contexts. Uh, we know that Illinois has a unique law on um, collecting biometric information and uh, companies have had to alter their their trade practices and their EULAs to, to comply with that as well. Uh, but certainly you could understand why they would be uh, opposed to that. Yeah. Uh, and then one last kind of interesting wrinkle here is the abortion rights uh, element of this. Hmm. So a lot of abortion rights activists in the wake of the Dobbs decision in 2022 overturning Roe v. Wade right. uh, believe that governments in states that have banned abortion could track people uh, through their cell phone traveling out of state seeking an abortion. Um, and uh, when you combine that with other similar types of threats on people's civil liberties, uh, like digital stalking they mention and national security, uh, I think in the mind of these legislatures, uh, of this legislature, the risk is just too large that the collection of this information is going to be abused. Hmm. Um, it seems kind of out of place for Massachusetts to be raising that concern here. Uh, I under certainly understand the uh, abortion angle to this, but abortion is legal in Massachusetts, and this law won't really have extra territorial uh, application. So it's not like the Massachusetts legislature can control the type of information that's uh, available to be sold in Tennessee or whichever uh, 
state has passed one of these uh, anti-abortion laws. Right, right. So this is just definitely something we're going to have to follow. It seems like this has a very good chance of passing, but it would be a very significant law because it would be the first of its type across the country. Yeah. It's interesting, the the, the opposition here that you mentioned, um, they seem to want to— uh, to give consumers the ability to opt out of sale rather than having a, a broad prohibition. To me, that seems like a non-starter. I mean, we've, you know, if, if, if they really believe it, then let consumers opt in. If they believe that um, the benefits are clear and that consumers are, are uh, really want this, right? <laughs> you know, consumers really want to be, to have their locations tracked because of the benefits of it then let them opt in. Right. Uh, don't make them opt out. But of course, they're not going to do that because uh, as we, you know, it's just too, there's too much money at play. There's, there's information. just too much money in it. Yeah, yeah. Too valuable. I mean, you can think of this as kind of a sliding scale. It's the, this Massachusetts ban would be the uh, most extreme version of restrictions on location data. Yeah. Then you could have at the next level would be an opt-in where the default is, Companies aren't allowed to buy and sell your data, but you could opt into it. Then there would be the opt-out, which is the approach that Connecticut has taken, as well as a number of uh, other states, states that are both controlled by Republicans in the legislature and by Democrats. Mm-hmm. And then there's the do-nothing approach, which is <laughs> still uh, the law of the land in several states where we have really no inhibitions. It's, a, it's a, an approach that stands the test of time. It sure does. Uh, and certainly has stood the test of time federally. Right. So even since the Carpenter decision in 2018, we now have this whole new frontier of companies buying and selling data. And in many cases, it's not just local police departments who are purchasing this data for law enforcement purposes, but it's federal agencies. So the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, mm-hmm. ICE, uh, and they're doing this obviously without any judicial authorization. So, you know, it means that if these agencies have the money, they can uh, use this data for surveillance, which certainly cuts against the spirit of the Fourth Amendment. And it's yeah. something that Congress probably should take up, but it hasn't. Uh, or they've kind of gone at it in fits and starts and haven't been able to actually enact anything into law. So I think in light of that inaction, you see states getting out in front of this issue. And it looks like Massachusetts is, is going to be the trailblazer on this. It's interesting. I, I, want, I wonder what you, if you're a company, let's say like Verizon, you know, you're, you're a big wireless provider. So this is the data that uh, through the course of business, you naturally collect um, even if you're not, if so, let's say even if you're not selling the data, uh, you're collecting this data just as part of providing your service to people. As as you as someone travels and their phone pings tower to tower, right? right. And you, you know that that information gets logged. Um, if you're a Verizon of the world, how do you deal with state borders? You know the the states that border Massachusetts, and suddenly I'm pinging this tower. And, you know, I move 100 yards in this direction, and now I'm pinging the tower across the border um, because, you know, radio signals don't obey borders. State boundaries, (laughs) yeah. Right, right. So, you know, it's just, it's an interesting puzzle to me when um, those lines from a practical point of view could be fuzzy. I wonder how they're going to approach that. Yeah, I mean, it would be really hard to enforce. Massachusetts borders a number of different states. Yeah. Uh, 
actually borders, if, you, if my geography is correct, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York. Right. Uh, so that's a lot of opportunities to run into this issue where somebody is uh, physically in Massachusetts, but they are pinging a tower in one of these other states. Mm-hmm. So how do you adjudicate these disputes? Is it based on where the individual is physically located or on which tower they ping? And does that create some type of uh, bizarre situation where somebody outside of Massachusetts uh, happens to gain additional rights over their location just because they're pinging a cell phone tower in Massachusetts. Right, right. Uh, even though their state hasn't passed any type of law or restriction. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that could certainly present some complications. That's the problem with doing this at the state level generally. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. it would be, certainly be better in terms of compliance to have some uniformity, and you could only really do that through federal legislation, unless every state... Uh, decided to jump uh, jump off the bridge at the same time. But that rarely happens. <laughs> right, right. States think very differently from one another. Uh, state legislatures have all different types of uh, legislative sessions, some that span months, some that span years. So even practically, it's just hard to do that. Hmm. Uh, but this is what happens when you have federal inaction. States try to dip their feet in the water, and it causes all of these types of uh, territorial disputes potential territorial disputes that are really hard to adjudicate. Yeah. No, this is interesting. And, and I suppose, um, from my point of view anyway, it's good that uh, Massachusetts has got their eye on this. I, I don't see much of a downside. Uh, I, I guess in my mind, this is long overdue. The, we, we, it, to me, it's established that uh, the ability to track someone's location the way that they can with cell phone data is a, is an overreach from the companies and in my opinion uh, uh, too far when it comes to uh, violating our privacy so to me this is a good thing that, that uh, Massachusetts is taking a look at this and hopefully uh, putting some limits on it I- pretty profitable though I mean <laughs> if you're one of these companies that obtains this data yeah and all of a sudden you know this has become a revenue source for these companies. Uh, and at least in one state, you're going to cut off that source of revenue. They're going to fight it. Uh, They're probably not going to fight it saying, (laughs) we're Verizon and we're going to lose money. They're probably going to fight it by forming the Coalition to Protect Freedom or the State Privacy and Security Coalition, if you will, uh, to fight against something Some way we'll find a way that this is keeping us from protecting the children, right? Yes. (laughs) As uh, Helen Lovejoy said, Always think of the children. Well, somebody think of the children. <laughs> right, right, right. All right. Well, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's a story of perhaps some hope, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious to see if the industry through these trade associations has the clout in a very liberal state like Massachusetts to take this down. Uh, yeah. It's going to be a really intense lobbying effort. Um, And I think it would be a good sign for the privacy and civil liberties community if Massachusetts can overcome that type of opposition and actually enact this into law. Um, Then you'd have to go through the court system. I mean, I could see a concern under the Dormant Commerce Clause if the Supreme Court or federal courts determines that this in some way interferes with interstate commerce Hmm. um, or it's uh, if they view it as kind of a protectionist action on the part of Massachusetts – 
um, then you could potentially run into those types of issues. I don't necessarily think that's going to be a problem, right. um, but I'm just trying to foresee how this, this might become an issue in federal courts if it gets there. Yeah. And I'm sure these trade associations uh, would throw everything at the wall to see what sticks uh, in order to prevent a type of law like this from from actually going into place. Yeah. It crossed my mind that, um, you know, I wonder if we could see a rush to suddenly people uh, spinning up VPNs that made it look like their location was in Massachusetts. But I I guess it really wouldn't apply because we're talking about wireless mobile devices and wireless devices hitting towers. So it's different than, you know, your home computer's IP address, that sort of thing. Right, where you can use ExpressVPN or whatever to (laughs) disguise where you are. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, we will keep an eye on that one. It's interesting for sure. Uh, my story this week comes from The Verge. Uh, this is an article by Wes Davis, uh, and it's titled, Sarah Silverman is suing OpenAI and Meta for copyright infringement. Of course, Sarah Silverman is a well-known popular uh, comedian and um, author. And She's uh, very funny. <clears throat> I, I hope that uh, if the story gains legs, that she'd be willing to come on our podcast and, and do a routine, talk about <laughs> uh, copyright law, but also, you know, regale us with, with some of her funny comedy. Yeah. So it's an open invitation, Sarah. There you go. There you go. Yeah, uh, I, I have enjoyed her work as well. Uh, and what's at the center of this case is that um, she published a book called titled uh, Bedwetter, um, and what she's claiming is that uh, the systems from OpenAI, ChatGPT, um, have sort of vacuumed up the contents of her book from what they're describing as shadow libraries, which are, uh, they describe in this article, there's websites uh, like Bibliotech, Library Genesis, Z Library, and others, which are basically um, you know, black market libraries. So they, they, get access to books, they make uh, PDFs of them, and you can have access to these books for free without paying for them or without having your local library having purchased a copy or, you know, made whatever the proper channels are to make this book available. So she's claiming that um, OpenAI gained access to the contents of her book through one of these services, one of these online systems, and that is a copyright violation um, and the fact that a service like ChatGPT, when asked, can summarize her book, that that is a copyright infringement. Um, I have thoughts on this, and, and I have to say I, I question some of this. But Me too. I'm, I'm wondering yeah. where, you, where you land on this, Ben. So I can really see both sides of it. I mean, this is her intellectual property. Right. Uh, and... They are taking the actual text of her book, putting putting it into this iterative language model, and it's spitting out a summary. I mean, at least in theory, somebody could read the summary instead of reading the book itself, and that might cause Sarah Silverman to lose money. That's kind of the essence of a copyright violation. Okay. On the other hand, I'm failing to see why this doesn't qualify under fair use, or at least I wouldn't say I'm failing to see it. I would say I certainly question whether this would be a type of fair use. Uh, because when we search something on Google, for example, it displays pictures, information that might be copyright protected. Right. But it's, uh, it carries an exception under our copyright law because it's not presenting the information in and of itself. It's just kind of a conduit uh, for us to access that information. Yeah. 
I'm not sure how analogous the situation is to a Google search, but I also know I could probably uh, get a decent summary of Bedwetter by doing a Google search and going onto one of these sites myself uh, that she uh, mentions in this lawsuit. Right. So I'm not sure why the fact that it goes into this uh, ChatGPT AI model makes that much of a difference. I guess because it's automated, you can replicate it a million times. It doesn't require a user to actually step through those hoops. Yeah. It seems to me like the core of what they're going after here is that OpenAI did not purchase a copy of the book. Right. That's the crux of this, I think. Right, right. So what if OpenAI went to their local library and borrowed a copy of the book and had ChatGPT ingest it from that? Right, or... You know, there are a bunch of different ways we can get summaries of books without buying them or reading them. Right. Uh, you know, Amazon has the rights to these book, but to these books, but they frequently have summaries. Your friend buying a book and reading it and then summarizing it to you. I think one of the reasons this has become a case is because ChatGPT is good enough at what it does that the summaries are quite accurate. Mm. Um, and even though they get some details wrong, uh, it is in many ways, just a replication of the copyrighted text. Yeah. Uh, so I understand why that would be a concern. It's it's too accurate and too detailed of a summary uh, that it might uh, dissuade it. It might dissuade people from purchasing the book because ChatGPT has stolen this information without paying for it and has translated it into something that's so easily digestible uh, for the consumers. Yeah. Um, but I do think that we have to look at the broader implications of this lawsuit. It's funny that this is about Sarah Silverman, but there are a lot of other plaintiffs here. Right. And there have been many other uh, cases filed alleging copyright uh, violations from ChatGPT and its competitors. Yeah. And we could get into a situation where a lot of these services are defanged by copyright violations, mm-hmm. uh, where they are cut off from access to certain corners of the internet if they have not purchased access uh, to that information, including things like copyrighted works, books, music, uh, etc. And that would certainly limit uh, the usefulness of, of ChatGPT and that would have consequences for the industry. So I think ChatGPT and similar companies are really going to go to the bat here uh, to try and litigate this and argue that um, this is fair use, that this is not uh, just a blatant copying without attribution uh, or without payment for uh, the work cited here. Yeah. And uh, I think this will really be an interesting test case on the future of ChatGPT. Let me let you in on a little secret here, Ben, that mm-hmm. is probably not so much of a secret. But uh, as you know, <laughs> as, uh, as the host of the CyberWire podcast, uh, one of the things that I do is interview a lot of book authors. Yeah. Right? Because people write books on cybersecurity and they want to have that book reviewed and promoted and do an author interview on the CyberWire because we have a big audience and it helps promote the book, You're like the Jimmy Fallon of the cybersecurity industry. Get (laughs) them on the couch, interview them about their new book. And it's all good. You know, it's a nice, I like to think it's a virtuous circle. You know, we help spread the word and people get educated and all that kind of stuff. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that uh, as much as I would like to, I do not always have time to read the entire book. Right. I get so many books. We get so many books sent to us. Uh, books are long. 
<laughs> I have a lot of work to do, a lot of research, so I don't always have time to read the book. So sometimes what I will do is instead of re- reading the book, I will read reviews of the book, mm-hmm. right? So if I can find, let's say, half a dozen reviews of the book— That'll give me a summary of the book. It'll give me what people thought were interesting about the book with the flaws people found in the book. And and that can be good enough research for me to do a thoughtful interview with the author, right? So what that leads me to is, what if the chatbot is trained on reviews of the book and not the book itself? Yeah, then, I mean, a review is certainly fair use. Right. Uh, so then you're not illegally accessing information uh, and putting it into your model. I think that would make a big difference in terms of this particular lawsuit. Yeah. Um, I, I think the circumstances of this lawsuit are uh, relatively explicit in mm-hmm. that it's it's narrowed to this very particular circumstance where, um, you know, you have these steps uh, that outline how the data sets have these kind of illicit origins. Right. Uh, and that's not going to be the case with something like uh, summarizing a review just because a review is... Um, uh, I guess uh, not really a reproduction of the copyrighted work. It's yeah. just that, a, a summary. Yeah. Uh, so I think that would make a huge difference. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think big picture here, my thought is that this highlights uh, how much catching up our copyright law needs to do. Um, I personally think that, you know, copyright is too long, uh, I, I don't understand why, you know, we get so much longer. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the, the reason is because Mickey Mouse. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but for example, why is copyright so much longer than, say, a patent? Right. Um, and I think it's just gotten too long uh, beyond its original use. You know, copyright was was for fair use, not for the protection of the authors originally. And, right. Um, I mean, you have to balance the protect the protection of the financial interests of the author right. with having like a, uh, and I don't know how to put this in a way that doesn't sound kind of corny, but like a marketplace of information right. where people can read creative works and discuss them and uh, have them in the public easily accessible. Yeah. Uh, so you have to balance those competing interests. And I think this lawsuit and ones like it are going to test the boundaries of uh, those conflicting values in court. Uh, and it's just something that's going to go on for a while because I think it is an existential threat for both the authors and for ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stakes are very, very high here. If it turns out that ChatGPT comes becomes good enough to reproduce the book that, you know, it's just as useful and entertaining for a random person to read the ChatGPT summary as it is to read the book itself, mm-hmm. then that's a major threat to people like Sarah Silverman. Right. Conversely, uh, if the court rules in the other direction, uh, that's a major threat to uh, OpenAI, ChatGPT, uh, because it's going to cut off their access to a lot of useful inputs that would go into making their service uh, more comprehensive. Right. So the stakes here are, are really, really high. I'm very curious to see what this federal court does. And I suspect that this is going to be a long litigation. Uh, they're already trying to establish a class for the purpose of a class action lawsuit. Uh, so it's certainly going to be a bunch of different plaintiffs. And now that more of these companies are popping up, it's going to be a lot of different defendants. So this is going to be very complex litigation. Yeah. 
All right, that's another one we'll have to keep an eye on, uh, see how it plays out. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's it's a fascinating one for sure. All right, we will have a link to all of these stories in our show notes. And of course, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Ben, you recently had a really interesting conversation with Dan Freckling, who is CEO of Boltive. Uh, They're a company that provides publishers and ad exchanges with tools uh, to monitor and audit their programmatic ads. Uh, That's what they do, but the conversation with Dan is really a lot more uh, far-reaching when it comes to some policy things. Uh, Interesting stuff. Here's Ben's conversation with Dan Freckling. Well, there's quite a bit going on, uh, Ben, both at the, the state level and in the private sector with regard to the lawsuits that we're seeing, frankly, that, that are coming up. And 2023 has been a banner year. It's, it's five years since the passage of really the effective date of GDPR and the effective date of, of CCPA in California. And I think we're going to continue to see states innovating with their legislatures. I don't think we're going to see a national law. It's not likely to happen this year. And if it's not happening this year, it's definitely not happening in an election year next year. So it's going to continue to be up to the states and they are not shirking at the task. So we had five U.S. state laws taking effect this year, five comprehensive laws, more if you consider sectoral laws like uh, that related to healthcare. But you also, we've also seen five, soon to be six more laws passed this year for future years. And the legislative sessions aren't even over yet. So what we're seeing the states really lead, we're seeing lawsuits come in, in areas, particularly around healthcare and video, with new legal theories, some decades old, being applied to the privacy problem. So it's um, an immense amount of activity. I don't, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say there has never been a regulatory change in history that has happened this fast simultaneously, really around the world as what we're seeing with privacy now. 75% of the world's population is under one form or another of comprehensive privacy laws, and that number was only 20% of the world in 2020. Wow, I guess I didn't realize uh, how drastic that change has been. Yeah, I mean, I think 2022 was the closest we were going to get to some type of federal data privacy regulation, and for a variety of parochial reasons, it didn't happen at the end of the last legislative session. And I I think you're right that the action is going to happen at the state level. Are there any 
recently enacted or state statutes under consideration that have caught your eye? Um, I saw that you had posted something on a Florida uh, child protection law. Um, is there anything else besides that or that, that that's caught your eye recently? Yeah, there has been. So the Florida Bill of Rights is very interesting. What's happening in Florida and Texas, because they're red states, the fact that they're taking privacy so seriously is uh, is a pretty big deal. A pretty, I think a pretty good sign in terms of it being a bipartisan issue. What we're seeing in, in Connecticut is quite interesting because they've already passed a comprehensive law. It's a very good law, but they're continuing to innovate on it. And that's a theme we may want to come back to. But what they've done is, is they have a good comprehensive privacy law. But this year, they have passed on some amendments that address health and children's data simultaneously. And that's a bit unusual. Sometimes you have, like in Washington State, my health, my data, very much a health focus law. Uh, the, the Child Age Appropriate Design Code Act in California, very much a, a children's data oriented law. Well, well Connecticut is, is embracing two, and it's, it's protecting in women's health and it's protecting children's health all in one bill. And, and, and expanding on the uh, the CTDPA, as, as it's called, which is Connecticut's law. So that, that to me is the most interesting recent law. I did just mention a second ago, My Health, My Data in Washington State, which sounds like a, um, a health bill, a health law, but it really goes beyond that because of the way that health is defined. It includes nutrition. It includes fitness, um, well-being, other things that would traditionally be beyond um, um, a HIPAA, perhaps, definition of health. And the fact that it's not just residents of Washington state that are protected, it's consumers. And that means that cloud services housed in Washington state, like AWS and Azure. Right? I was just going to mention, yeah, I mean, there's one very prominent company headquartered in Washington state. Yeah. How do you feel about that integrated approach that you've seen with the Connecticut law and the Washington law, where you're bringing some of these disparate uh, subject matters like health data privacy and children's privacy under the umbrella of a broader data privacy law. What do you think about that approach? I think it's a good sign because it reminds us that the states are much more agile when it comes to keeping up with current events than the federal level is. So when the Dobbs decision uh, last year, which overturned Roe versus Wade and opened up a whole series of new issues around women's health, the states have taken action on that. And Contrast that with the federal government, where even the, the federal privacy laws that we've been able to pass, you know, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, 1986, that's nearly 40 years old, yet it hasn't been updated for email, right? Computers, mobile phones, internet. Right? So that the slow glacial pace of federal laws compared to the way that states can catch up as we see generative AI create new privacy issues. I mean, good luck with the federal government protecting citizens. I, my money would definitely be on this continued state innovation. Yeah, I know we're uh, starting to address it here in Maryland. I've talked to legislators who are looking at, at other states and seeing what's being done about this generative AI problem. It's six months old, and um, we don't have really any framework to, to deal with it. And we don't want the consequences to spiral out of, out of control. In terms of this state-federal distinction, obviously the critique is, especially from the private sector, you don't have a level of uniformity. Compliance becomes difficult. You know, there are certain er issues around preemption. How do you see those issues and uh, how would you respond to a critic of kind of this state-by-state -state approach? Well, you can have both. Um, you can have both because if you have a federal law 
that sets a floor and doesn't preempt states, then you can have the best of both worlds, at least from a consumer protection standpoint, meaning you're covering all 50 states with, with at least a baseline protection. And then you're allowing individual states to go further to the degree that they need to. It's not a best outcome for the chambers of commerce and businesses because it, it can be quite hard to, to match to all those state laws, but it's hard to match to all the sales tax laws. It's hard to match to all the insurance laws that vary by state. Health breach notification laws went from same path that we're seeing right now, started in California and over 15 years, every state passed its own health breach notification law. And we seem to have made it through there. So I think the critics are right that it does make things more complicated. The patchwork makes things more complicated for businesses. In, in the interest of consumers who have been the ones who have been on the invasive end of this, they have been sort of suffering from the lack of protection. It is going to be the best outcome to have a federal law when we get to it in states in, in the meantime. And by the way, as a, I was born and raised in Maryland and um, with a little bit of a, a Virginia getting the, the head start on uh, the v- Virginia uh, Privacy Act. I really do hope Maryland catches up. Yeah, we've had a hard time. We've had a version of it proposed in, I think, three or four consecutive legislative sessions. And for a variety of reasons, uh, it hasn't made it across the finish line, but we're going to keep trying. <laughs> uh, well, you talk a little bit about the area of children's privacy online. I know uh, there have been, there's been some administrative action on it uh, at the federal level um, and then some state statutes, but just your general lay of the land, what the major issues are and, and how states are dealing with that. Sure. Yeah. So it, children's data is, is been protection has been a neglected corner of law until recently. So COPPA from 2000 is the only federal law addressing targeted advertising at children. And it requires verifiable consent, but it only covers children under 13 years of age. And it has lagged innovations in online technologies, though in 2013, it was extended to cookie tra- uh, trackers and geolocation data. But this is, you know, back to how the states are leading. CCPA in California increased the age of consent to 16 uh, years. So they're between age 13 and 16. There's some authorization required. It added um, different forms of, 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 of pers- what was considered personal information. Now, the, the California Age Appropriate Design Code Act, which I mentioned a moment ago, that mirrors what's going on in the UK to require uh, businesses to estimate with some level of certainty how old a visitor is, how old a child is visiting their site to, to go a little bit further. And that protects children up to age 18. So we're kind of seeing the bar literally raised from 13 to 16 to 18. And that's, I think, necessary. At the federal level, we've got uh, COPPA 2.0, CTAPA, it's also called, which is trying to do some of those same things. COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act, trying to do some of those things but uh, but not having as much luck for the reasons we just mentioned. But, but I, I, where I will credit the federal government is after Biden's State of the Union address in February, we've uh, where, where he sort of uh, extolled or exhorted uh, Congress to get behind uh, a ban on online ads for children. Congress still hasn't acted, but but the FTC certainly has with right with you know, five hundred million dollars in fines to Epic Games and. And then recently, um, um, Edmodo, an educational company, um, Amazon with its Alexa uh, recording and storing children's voices and, and Microsoft Live, Xbox. So we're, we're seeing the FTC step in. As it said, as Lena Khan said it would, until there's a federal law, the FTC will act within it, what it uses uh, as its rulemaking authority to protect 
to protect kids as, as Biden asked for. So that's been an interesting, I mean, we're not even halfway, we're just about halfway through the year. And we've seen, you know, at least four major FTC actions around children's data. Which is pretty unprecedented. I mean, we have not seen this in previous years. This seems to be a Lena Khan uh, innovation during her tenure <laughs> uh, at the FTC, uh, which I, I think is certainly promising. Uh, what do you see as sort of the next frontier in data privacy? So we talked about iterative chatbot AI. What are some other issues that are not quite on uh, the public's radar yet, but that are on your radar in terms of future privacy regulation? You know, we, I don't, oh gosh, I, I, we have so much going on right now, uh, Ben. I, I don't even look that much further ahead to know, you know, there's, there's, um, it's a story. It's a, it's a medium by medium story, of course, right? So the other thing the FTC has done and California has done in its enforcement sweeps is to target apps, right? Apps which behave very similar to websites when you look at the SDKs within apps operating the same way um, as trackers do. So that's going to unfold um, more this year. If we ever get to the metaverse, if you know, when we record this, it's a couple days after um, Apple announced its its new. Uh, uh, its new product, Vision Pro, or whatever they're calling it, there will be privacy issues because every new medium has its own privacy issues, as we learned about the, the Xbox uh, case uh, that just passed this year. Yeah, as, as we look out to to what's happening in maybe a year from now, my interest is in is what private enterprise does because in Q3 of next year, we have Google finally saying for sure, without a doubt, they're going to deprecate third-party cookies in the Chrome browser. So that whole tracking mechanism that has been around, it will be the the 40th, is it the 40th anniversary, the 30th anniversary of Lou Montulli inventing the cookie will be the will be the the sort of demise of the third party cookie, which Lou never intended. But that to me is what what is what is the private sector going to do when it's when it's commercial actors? We saw it with Apple in app tracking transparency. Now we're seeing it with Chrome and deprecation of cookies. How is that going to change the landscape? Because that's going to have a pretty profound impact on e-commerce and online advertising. Yeah, and I think frequently the private sector fills in those gaps when they see it uh, within their interest for the bottom line, and that's one of the ways we get privacy protections. I mean, Apple has tried to sell themselves as the company that will protect your data, and it's given them a competitive advantage. Beyond what we've talked about so far, is there anything else that we didn't address that you think is worth mentioning before we wrap up? Yeah, I think what's going on with video privacy is quite interesting. This is the this is something that's driven by um, a, a law called the VPPA, the Video Privacy Protection Act, and and as you may know, the origins there were with Robert Bork's Supreme Court nom- uh, nomination, where he was defeated or was not 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 nominated or was was not approved by Congress. One of the things that was used to attack his character was uh, getting a list of his rentals back when they were videotapes. I remember, but, yep, <laughs> yeah, right, right, and, and so that law, history, yep. right, and so uh, uh, it, and it was not because of any sympathy for Robert Bork. Um, it was because everyone in Congress said if they can do it to him, they can do it to me. So they quickly passed that Video Privacy Protection Act so that you could no longer go and require request somebody's video um, uh, rental history, but. There's this, 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 this class of companies called videotape service providers, which we pretty much assumed had gone away with the closure of the last blockbuster, now has been applied to streaming video. And the presence even of, of, of a single pixel sharing data on a video page has uh, been alleged or asserted um, is in the scope of this videotape law because uh, pixels reveal things about your viewing, my viewing, when we visit that page and that that pixel is firing. 
this is a subject for the courts right now to decide because some of the argument is, well, this data isn't really that personal if you're just sharing what the page title was uh, that somebody visited. But if there's more data that's shared beyond that, like the events that somebody did, if they filled out a form, if they provided survey information, that almost doesn't matter, Ben, because it's created enough churn and dust that certain law firms are sending warning letters to companies which is essentially extortion, saying, if you don't pay us $10,000, we're going to take this to court. And many companies, if they're, it's not uncommon for there to be a, a pixel on a page hosting video, even if you're not a streaming company, many companies are having to cave because they don't have the legal resources to respond. So I think that's interesting. It, it does show a little bit of overreach um, that, and part of the reason why we see some of these laws prohibit a private right of action to enforce them. But I think it's an influence nonetheless because it gets into all kinds of allegations about wiretapping uh, violations and interception and stuff that sounds really, really nasty when the companies who are involved were completely unknowing about any wrongdoing on their part. Right. Not to mention then you get not to get too much into the legalese here, but then you get into issues with the third party doctrine where you've inadvertently but voluntarily shared data with a third party. And if they receive a subpoena, they will comply with it. No warrant required, which is going to be unfortunate for the consumer if law enforcement gets involved. That's true. Yeah. Very good point on that. Interesting conversation, Ben. I, I really enjoyed that one. Um, I, I think the, the big take-home seems to be that uh, for the moment, the action in, is really at the state level when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, I mean, we really struck out at the federal level at the end of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, there was hope for federal data privacy law. And for a bunch of complicated reasons, including the parochial interests of the former Speaker of the House, Uh, (laughs) who represents the state of California. California had this strong CCPA data privacy law. Uh, She was, and other members of the California delegation were worried about this federal law being weaker and yet still preempting that state law. Um, We struck out at the federal level. And I think kind of thematically, this goes with our first story today. It's a vacuum uh, that the states have had to fill up with their own policies. And there are certainly advantages to that. States are the laboratories of democracy, but there are disadvantages. Um, It's hard to establish uniformity. Compliance is really uh, really an issue for companies in the private sector. So um, there are certainly pluses and minuses, but I think yeah, uh, we're recognizing the reality that the action on this, at least for the time being, is going to be at the state level. I I really uh, enjoyed the part that Dan brought up about the video privacy law, you know, that law going all the way back to Judge Bork with uh, 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 making it illegal to to get people's video rental lists um, and how people are, are applying that law to tracking pixels with videos online. I think it's just an, an interesting example of a, a legacy law with a long tail uh, that people are experimenting with to try to apply in, in this new digital realm. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so funny. If there's one theme of our podcast generally, it's that a lot of litigation on the most modern contemporary forms of technology is based on either case law or statutes from the pre-digital world, which is just weird. It's a weird way of having a legal system. Right, right, yeah. It's like, uh, I don't know, 
automotive law based on rulings on horse and buggies. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Very well done metaphor. <laughs> thank you, thank you. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Dan Freckling from Bolta for joining us. Uh, really interesting stuff, and we do appreciate him taking the time. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at caveat at n2k.com. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Listening.